You're listening to the podcast series for the 2017 Shalom Sydney Jewish Fighters Festival. I'd like to welcome Mark Tedeschi to the Shalom Sydney Jewish Fighters Festival podcast. Hello, Mark. Hi. Now, for those who don't know, Mark is a renowned barrister, having prosecuted many of Australia's uh, you know, most gruesome crimes. He's also a published photographer. But a great author. Latest book, uh, What Happened at Mile Creek. But before we get to that book, Mark, in our day jobs, when we want to relax, we go home and may play tennis or golf or something like that. You pick true crimes after going through gruesome days, potentially often at work. Yeah, some What's of my it? colleagues think that I'm crazy. <laughs> What's the fascination? Um, I love to write. Okay. I find it very relaxing. Um, I find uh, I'm, I feel very familiar with words mm-hmm. as a tool. Uh, I love I, I love writing. I love editing. Uh, I enjoy the research. Um, for me, it's um, it's something that envelops me, and I can spend hours and hours and get completely lost in the process. But so the historical stuff where you get to look through original sources and things like that? Do you enjoy the process? Yeah, I enjoy the process. Um, I enjoy the research and I enjoy the writing. I really enjoy the process. Um, What comes afterwards, the publication and, you know, if it sells well, is an added bonus, but that's not the main reason for doing it. So tell us about, you know, the Mile Creek Massacre, because I'd say the majority of Australians don't have a clue about it. You'd be surprised, actually. There are quite a few schools that are now teaching it at at, um, senior high school level. Um, So more and more Australians do know about it. Um, It was a massacre of 28 Aboriginal men, women and young children in 1838. And we know more about that massacre than we do about uh, any of the other hundreds of massacres that occurred all over Australia because um, it was thoroughly investigated by a magistrate and 11 of the 12 perpetrators were arrested and brought to Sydney and faced trial in Sydney. And um, seven of those 11 were eventually convicted in a second trial and they were hanged for murder. And it really represents the only occasion in the um, history of colonial Australia where whites were brought to justice for the mass murder of Aboriginal people. So what made this mass? Why was this massacre different to other massacres? It was different, firstly, because it was reported to the authorities by the white manager of Mile Creek Station, contrary to the interests of the landowner who he worked for, John uh, Henry Dangar, um, that manager's name was William Hobbs, and he reported it to the governor and to the local magistrate. And the local magistrate was a man by the name of Captain Edward Denny Day, and he conducted a very thorough investigation at the request of Governor Gipps. He managed to arrest 11 of the 12. They were all convicts who were responsible. The only free man who was the ringleader of the group got away and was never prosecuted. And these 11 men were brought to Sydney and faced a trial that was prosecuted by the then Attorney-General of New South Wales, a man by the name of John Hubert Plunkett. 
And the reason why we know so much about this massacre is really because of this trial that took place. Um, Plunkett did an amazing job of prosecuting it. He was um, an Irish Catholic. He was determined that here was an opportunity to establish the principle of the equality of all before the law and the, the fact that the law um, respected the value of Aboriginal life as much as the life of white people. And um, he recognised that it was just no ordinary murder trial. Were these views, you know, which is saying the quality of each person, which, you know, it's obviously the kind of issues that we take for granted today in most situations, was that controversial at the time? Were they Absolutely. Um, in fact, the vast bulk of white society was horrified that these 11 men had, had been prosecuted. They thought those men were doing nothing more than protecting the legitimate pastoral and economic interests of the colony. They're doing nothing more than had been done by a whole lot of other people. They were doing nothing more than what their landowning masters wanted them to do. And why should they suffer the punishment under the law? So um, most of society, including the landowners, the newspapers, the military, even the convicts, white convicts, were against this prosecution. Okay, so after the after the case, after you know these men were convicted and some of them hung, were there any ongoing repercussions from that? Uh, there were some people who bore a great resentment against Plunkett for many years, um, but he was such a an eminent citizen and such he achieved such a lot during his twenty years as Attorney General that people generally forgave him for for these seven convicts who were hanged. Um, the, um, the trial didn't stop the massacres, it just drove them underground. So instead of openly going around in posses of armed mounted stockmen looking for any Aboriginals to murder, they would do it more surreptitiously by poisoning water holes and leaving poison flour and... They wouldn't brag about it like they had in the past and they'd try and hide the evidence. So it didn't stop the massacres, but it, it did drive them underground. What was driving the massacres? Like, what, what were they, Was it just to drive people off their land? Competition for land. It was entirely about competition for land. As the great explorers made their discoveries of fertile new lands, people like um, Major Mitchell, um, Oxley... Blackstone went with, went with Lawson, um, Human Hovel, as they made their discoveries, within a very short period of time, the big landowners with big uh, herds of cattle or flocks of sheep were sending their assigned convicts out with these animals into these new areas and taking possession of them without any ownership, without any, any legal ownership, and they were called squatters for that reason. Um, and immediately there was this competition for land, this competition for resources, for, for clean water, for, um, for, for grassed areas, um, and, and it was that predominantly that caused this conflict. Tell me about the research that you needed to do for this book. There was a lot of research, um, but I, I very easily got hold of the two trials, the trial transcripts that... Um, of, of the two trials that took place. and um, But there was a lot of historical research into the, the 
the conditions that existed in New South Wales at the time in 1838. And uh, it was a very steep learning curve for me um, because <clears throat> I don't know, it might be a bit different now, but when I was a schoolboy, we were taught endlessly about the great explorers, but we were not taught about what happened very soon after. That was, that was not part of our Australian history. Um, I think now there are some schools that do teach it, but I, I, I think it's very important that all school students at an age-appropriate level be taught that there was this war that took place, this very one-sided war, where there was um, this attempt to displace the Indigenous population that had been in Australia for, we think, 65,000 years um, and replace them with uh, the sheep and the cattle of the big landowners. Um, we now, in the 21st century, have the language to describe what it was that happened. We can look back and we can say it was attempted ethnic cleansing. It was attempted genocide. We have the language and we have now um, a number of examples of trials that have taken place since the end of the Second World War. You know, the Nuremberg trials, the Tokyo trials, the ICTY for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTR for Rwanda, Cambodia and a few other places. There have been trials that have taken place for uh, war crimes, for genocide... Uh, and for ethnic cleansing. Were the same thing to happen today in Australia as what happened in the 1800s, our national leaders would be taken to the International Criminal Court in The Hague and prosecuted. Um, so, yeah, things have changed. Um, and I, I think it's important that we use the correct terminology. A lot of people have, are now describing what happened uh, during the clashes between the white settlers and the indigenous population as frontier wars. I think that's a misnomer myself. Mm. I don't think there were frontier wars because it was very one-sided. It was attempted ethnic cleansing. And I think that's a much more accurate description and I, I think it's important that we recognise it for what it really was. So what, why do you think, you know, bringing it to modern times, if you were to bring that up as a phrase, you know, people would fight against it now. They would say, well, that was the past and it was of its time and all that kind of thing. Why are we so reluctant to talk in those terms in the now? I think that we in Australia are only... Only in very recent times have we been willing to look at what happened and to acknowledge... Um, the tragedy of what occurred and the, the wrongfulness of it, uh, the illegality of it uh, under the laws that existed then, let alone today. And I think that what it should do is to give us uh, sympathy for the descendants of people who suffered from that for more than 100 years. Now, as Jews, we, we know all about um, persecution, discrimination, attempted genocide. And I think as Jews we, we have a, a, a special um, empathy for other people who have 
been the victims of attempted genocide and attempted ethnic cleansing. Um, but I think that we as Australians have been reluctant until very recently to use the right terminology and to acknowledge what it really was. But I, I've detected in the many talks that I've given about my book that there is an, an, a willingness to acknowledge what happened and to recognise it and, and, and to to give the appropriate degree of understanding for the descendants of those people who suffered from genocide for more than 100 years. So when concepts such as changing the day of Australia Day come up and there's such resistance, it seems ludicrous to have the National Day on that day for the, you know, for the Indigenous population yet there's such a resistance from the non-Indigenous population to change it. Look, uh, my own personal view is that uh, I don't have a problem with Australia Day being celebrated on the 26th of January. But I think that we should uh, uh, use the opportunity to acknowledge that Australia Day was a mixed blessing. Mm. It was a a great blessing for the uh, British who came out here and their descendants but it was an unmitigated tragedy and disaster for the Indigenous population. I can't see why we can't use the same day to acknowledge both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I give talks uh, about my book, I start off by talking about the very first celebration of Australia Day, which was on the 50th anniversary of the founding of the colony, and it was on the 26th of January, 1838. They didn't call it Australia Day because there was no Australia. It was called Foundation Day. And on that day, people celebrated in Sydney in a very similar way to the way that we celebrate it today, particularly around the harbour with you know boat, boats and uh, games and, and celebrations and, and the like. But on exactly the same day, several hundred miles to the north at a place called Waterloo Creek, a major in the, in the uh, colonial army, a major nun conducted one of the worst massacres in which over a hundred people were murdered in northern New South Wales and for which he was um, never punished or prosecuted. So the very first celebration of the 26th of January was once again, um, it, it highlighted the remarkable achievements of the white community in 50 years they had achieved a prosperity beyond anybody's dreams, largely on the basis of, of wool. Um, but it also, that day also signified, that very day also signified the extent of the tragedy for Indigenous people. And I think it's important that we recognise both. Mark, what do you read? What, what books are you reading at the moment? Oh, look, I'm... I'm very boring in my reading habits. I, I generally read non-fiction. I very seldom read fiction. Um, I've just finished reading Sapiens. Before that, I read a remarkable book called Rent, <laughs> which is about uh, a theory of some economists, predominantly in the United States, that we could do away with all forms of taxation if we just tax the rental value of land, which I found very interesting. Um, And um, I'm about to read a book called Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a true crime story from the United States, uh, 
about some murders that took place of um, Indigenous American Indians um, in the very early years of the FBI. So we're talking about the 20s and 1920s and 30s. Yeah. And finally, you've just returned from a trip to Israel. Yes. How, how would you describe your relationship with Judaism? Oh, very complex. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a great love of Israel. I felt terribly emotional when I landed there because it's been over 30 years since I've been there last. It was my fourth time, but it's been a long time mm. since the last time. And it had changed enormously, and I felt terribly emotional about being there once again. And I feel a deep connection with Israel and the Jewish people. Um, I'm not a particularly religious person. Uh, I seldom go to synagogue. I feel that my connection with the Jewish community is important, and I find that difficult to reconcile with my lack of attendance at synagogue. But I do feel an enormous sense of identity with the Jewish people. I feel a great pride in my Jewish history. Um, I feel that the basic tenets of Jewish religious belief uh, are eminently logical. And when I say basic, I mean really basic. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um so, yeah, my, my Jewish identity plays a very important part in my life. Mark Tedeschi, thank you for your time. Thank you. They're good questions. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the 2017 Shalom Sydney Jewish Writers Festival. To find out more about Shalom's exciting programs and events, go to www.shalom.edu.au or like us on Facebook at Shalom Australia. Are you interested in getting a podcast made for your company or organisation? Contact Rob at rob at etals, e or 0404 289 956.